I want to open with just a few stats about us, particularly as Americans in the room. Americans make more than four times as much as the average person outside the U.S., but we spend close to 98% of that on ourselves. We spend more money eating out than we do on charity. We spend more on our pets than we do on the poor. We spend more on things like pornography than combating oppression and injustice. And and let's be clear, it's not because we're in a tough spot. It's not because... um, you know what, inflation is happening and everything's getting bad. Americans give less to charity today, percentage wise, than they did during the Great Depression. Consider that a household income of six figures puts most of us in the top half of 1% of people worldwide. Yet only one third of Americans who make six figures say that they feel like they have enough money to buy what they need. <clears throat> the richest 1% in the richest part of the world feel like they don't have enough. That overflows into our addiction to things like debt. More than 70% of all credit card balances in the U.S. only see uh, the, only give out the minimum monthly payment towards those. Americans spend, on average, $1.26 for every dollar earned. And so we save less than any industrialized nation. Places like Germany and others give uh, save like 10% a year. Americans save a negative 0.5% because we spend more than we actually have. This is the world that most of us women, of how we view finances, of how we interact with the world, how we think about our money. And I'm going I'm to say this up front. We're going to be talking about generosity. Okay? Just throwing it out there as your pastor. Um, it's where the text leads in Matthew, but I'm also going to be honest. We are going to camp here for several weeks. Now, I know when pastors talk about money, it's weird. It could be an emotional trigger. There's often a lot of baggage that comes along with it. And let me be honest. I don't necessarily want to teach about money, and you don't want to want to hear about money. I just want to throw that out there as your pastor. But there's a weird tension in all of it. Because my hesitation is because the church sometimes has totally manipulated or guilted or abused or done all sorts of just, I think, un biblical applications of money, yet, as all the stats I just quoted, it is, a, it is a heart issue and a sin problem that does exist for many on how we view our finances, how we view generosity, all that kind of stuff, and both are true. And so it's, it's just a, a unique thing to navigate. But we will be talking about it, and we're going to camp out for several weeks because um, yeah, I think it's important. It's something that Jesus talked about. So we're going to rebrand for the next four weeks. So here's, uh, here, here we go. So all the slides will change from here on out. I actually want to start there, and everybody's sitting there expecting it. So Jesus said a lot about money. I just want to be real about that. He said things like, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And for most of my life, I'm like, yeah, Jesus is probably right, but I just don't think that's that wise. Like, I, I just don't know if that actually comes to terms, and it's a real struggle. Yet it's not just Jesus. I mean, even social science has come around to be like, hey, shocker, Jesus was ahead of his time in what he had to say. Not that we need research to validate Jesus' claims, but he did, um, but the research has come around to to agree with that. So like secular research, like the paradox of generosity, the book put out, uh, the secular research would say in general, generous people are happier, healthier, live longer, have lower levels of depression and anxiety, 
are more interested in personal growth, have better long-term relationships. It's, it's all tied in. It says this, people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result, not of spending more money on oneself, but rather on giving money away to others. The data examined here shows this not to be simply a nice idea, but a social and scientific fact, that when you examine the empirical evidence, it turns out that the Western formula of more money equals more happiness is simply not true. And you have Christian authors who certainly echo that, like Richard Foster. He says, the unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulations. And let me be kind of clear, too, since we're a largely millennial Gen Z crowd, uh, but not completely. Um, We don't always go for the accumulation side of things. We actually really like probably the hedonism side of things. Uh, We like our money so that we can have a bunch of dinners and uh, experiences and things like that as well. So it may not be to get the most stuff and maybe also to spend on that kind of thing as well. That more is better. Uh, Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has almost lost touch with reality. And so to rephrase Foster here, that there's there's an unreason, there's there's this statement that good life is found in more stuff. Um, And we accept that without question, only finding out that it doesn't actually play out. And in some ways, he deems it psychotic. It's lost touch with actual reality, the way things really are. And we see at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus has called his people into is this blessed life, this upside-down life that the kingdom is involved in. And Jesus has a lot to say about money as he calls his people into this new way of life. Scholars say that uh, it's close to 25% of Jesus' teachings have something to do with money in some way. So if you want, every fourth sermon, we can start doing this. We can have a call to money and generosity, and we will shrink the church very fast. <laughs> and, and I'll be honest, as a pastor, I think the, the two times we've really spent time talking about money is when we've had a capital campaign and something to raise money for. Um, and so guess what? We don't have a capital campaign on the table. This is simply to slow down and focus on something that seems like Jesus found a lot of emphasis and interest in. And Jesus spent a lot of time on the subject. Because it's also fascinating, it's not that he's leading a synagogue. He's not needing to raise money on the annual budget because he's got to hire an associate rabbi for some role, uh, because there's a lot of people in the synagogue this year, so we've got to prepare for the growth. He's not raising money for temple projects. He's not even explicitly raising money for the poor, as Paul will do in his letters. He's simply interested, I think, in our hearts. That there's a freedom and a love of life with God, and he's calling his people into it. And for him, I think money is so much more than just money. It's the interior of our our being. And hear me, I know this is a tender area for many, which is why there's some trepidation as I kind of preach on this, but... For many topics, I think some people come in going, you know, I'm looking forward to Chris talking about this or Chris talking about that. But at this point today, some of you are like, I don't want Chris to talk about this. And if that's the case, perhaps it's less about me or anything, but more about a legitimate battle for our hearts. So let's encounter Jesus speak. And it starts right here in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. 
Truly I say to you, they received their reward. So Jesus uh, starts here, and, and we've covered this a little bit, that uh, the word righteousness also means generosity. It's, it's translated in multiple ways often in Scripture. And so uh, I would argue here, be wary of practicing your generosity, but um, because the very next thing is about giving to the needy. And so uh, Jesus introduces here the term hypocrites. Now, when we hear hypocrite, what do we think of? Heresies? Pharisees. Oh, Pharisees. I'm like, oh, that's a bunch of jump. But uh, yeah, Pharisees. Yeah, Pharisees. But, but when we use hypocrite today, what do, what do we use it for? Like, how, what are we describing? Yeah, certainly negative. Yeah, we don't use it positively. Politicians. Contradictory. Yeah, we use it for people that maybe say something and do something else behind the scenes or different. Now hear me. Uh, in the first century, the word was just the word actor. Uh, they would have used it if you were in Greek theater. Hi- hypocrite was the actors. That's, that's just used to describe the people who act. So, can you be an actor who is joyful and also portraying joy? Yeah, sure. Um, and so, I think Luke will use it sometimes in the very negative way that we as modern readers tend to use it. But Matthew, I think, uses it a little bit differently at times. Because sometimes he could, critiques the, the Pharisees as if you are doing the thing and you're teaching others to do it. The problem is the why you're actually doing this. And this becomes one of those moments, I think, where he's like, hold on, let's talk about your motivation of why you are doing your generosity and practicing it on the streets. Because for all we could tell, the Pharisees were actually fairly generous. They made sure they tithed on everything they possibly had. But Jesus critiques the why behind what they are doing. And so he will utilize this metaphor, this actor metaphor, and he uses it uh, in the next two sections as well related to prayer and fasting. We'll cover that as soon as the series is over. Now, in their day, uh, they were rebuilding a theater not far from where Jesus grew up, so Jesus might have even been part of the rebuilding project, part of being a tecton, uh, is not just a carpenter, but maybe a stonemason. So he might have been exposed to a bit of Greek theater, even though it wasn't super popular in Judaism. And so he would have been around it. And one of the things that, that was common, these, if you've ever been to these ancient theaters, they are quite large and massive. Um, and traveling groups would travel and put on productions. And there would be principal actors. And sometimes those actors, just like today, are well known. Now, if you're sitting way in the back and people have plenty of makeup on, which is, uh, that'll come up in the fasting teaching, and they have all this makeup on, uh, sometimes it's helpful to know, hey, that principal actor is coming on stage or that well-known person's there. And so what they would do, they would sound a trumpet. It would be a common practice. They would sound a trumpet, and the person would come on stage to go, oh, the famous person's here, or the well-known person's here. And Jesus is critiquing that, of saying, hey, those, you know those hypocrites? And he's referring to the Pharisees as the actors. You know those actors from the synagogue who stand there and, and want the trumpet sound. They want to be praised by others. They want everyone to know how important they are. And if you're an actor, what kind of reward do you receive at the end of your performance? Right, yeah, that is the reward that comes for an actor. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know what their reward is? Everybody just seeing how wonderful they are. That's it, and that's it. He's cutting it off there. He's saying, that's not, they they may not get a reward from the Father. They'll get a reward. Everybody will go, hey, look how generous that Pharisee is. But if their heart motivation's off, then, then that's all they're going to get out of their generosity. And so he's critiquing this. If you were generous simply to, so others know, the reward is that, and that's it. And then he starts talking about the secrecy part uh, when he gets into, um, but when you get to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. 
And the similar uh, teaching will come up with the fasting and prayer as well, the sort of secrecy language. Well, let's remember, Jesus is correcting a heart position, a heart motivation of why they're doing it. Because Jesus has also said, not that long ago, in just chapter 5, hey, uh, you are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden, so let your good works shine so that they may glorify the Father in heaven. So Jesus has already said, don't hide. Like, it's a problem if you hide it. Don't, if you're a light, don't hide it. So Jesus has already spoken of a public practice of ministry. And I think that tension is really about Jesus kind of, as I said, heart-correcting the people here. Simply going after the heart and maybe using some hyperbolic language to do so, but, but speaking and correcting their heart position, not whether or not you're always hiding everything that you do. Otherwise, how is anybody going to learn um, what it looks like to actually live it out? And the text ends with this conversation reward, that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, the tense is tricky. In, in English, we have a few less tenses uh, than what uh, Greek has. And so it speaks of the actors, the previous section, of saying, look, they have their reward now. The difficulty is that um, the tense that's used about the reward for those who would give in secret is that it is a present and a future verb. So it says, your father is rewarding you and will reward you into the future now. It's a now reward as well as a future reward. And I think we will see how this plays out as we continue reading Matthew 6. So sometimes it's always like, do good things now so that future you'll have a crown and all this kind of stuff. But what Jesus is actually speaking of is a present into a future sense. That there's something deeper, there's something that happens now, something to be maybe experienced, ways that we are made new or made different, change who we are. And I would say that is a central idea to generosity that we miss sometimes. Because Jesus will continue that into chapter six, throughout chapter 6. So we do prayer, we do fasting, and then we get back into all these teaching on finances by verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures, um, treasures on earth. I did the same thing before. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so your eye is healthy. The whole body will be good, full of light. And if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, we may read that and be like, that's a little weird, right? Like most of us are like, hey, the treasure in heaven, cool. The cancer of God and money, cool. Why is he talking about eyeballs in the middle of this section? And what do I do with that? And, and hear me, does any of your Bibles have a footnote on the healthy eye versus the bad eye or anything like that? Some, some, some translators point this out and some don't. Anybody? Anybody have a footnote that might have thrown something out there? It's okay if you don't. I think the NIV translators added this recently. So... There's a figure of speech in, in Hebrew around good eyes and bad eyes. Ayin tovah and ayin ra, good eye and a bad eye. And it even pops up multiple times in Scripture. So Proverbs 28. A stingy man, and hear me, the Hebrew there is the bad eye man 
hastens after wealth, and does not know that poverty will come upon him. So we even see translators just take bad eye and immediately make it about stinginess. Proverbs 22.9, whoever has a bountiful eye or a good eye will be blessed, or a healthy eye, uh, for he shares his bread with the poor. And so we see it connected to generosity. Matthew 20.15, uh, this is God speaking about how he pays different laborers different at the end of the day, or he pays them all the same at the end of the day. And he responds with this, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or is your bad eye, your eye bad, because of my generosity? Are you, are you seeing things like more stingy? Are you being that way? And as one commentator said, Lois Turberg, she says, having a good eye, an ayin is to look out for the needs of others and be generous in living for the poor. But to have a bad eye, an ayin ra, is to be greedy and self-centered, blind to the needs of those around you. And so it's an ancient idiom. So this whole good eye, bad eye isn't like Jesus has actually changed topics. He is continuing to speak on generosity and on stinginess. And I think he really speaks to how we actually see the world. With what lens are we viewing the reality of the world? Do we see the world in an abundance mentality or do we see the world in a scarcity mentality? And I think it even gets into some of our theology. Do do we see the world through the lens of Genesis 1 and 2? That God created this world, he created it good, that there's potential all the time, that there's things to look out for on what God is doing and where he's moving? Or do we see the world through a kind of Genesis 3 mentality of sin has wrecked havoc and all I see is the brokenness and all the things in this world? And I think what Jesus is inviting us into is a bit of a Genesis 1 and 2 reality, an abundance reality, where we see the world of, and live in God's generosity, that there's plenty that God is a generous host and we live into his hospitality and all of life is a gift. None of it is a right. And as a result, we live in gratitude towards God and generosity towards others, a healthy or a good eye. Because there's a scarcity mentality. Whether it's a world of lack, it's broken all the time, it's overpopulated, the future is bleak, not enough to go around, civilizations are going to battle over resources, it's going to be a dystopia, all that kind of view of the world. And we see the world such a way, and we are blind often to the needs of those around us, and we judge others, which he will get to as we go in the Sermon on the Mount. So instead of abundance, we see... Um, we see what we don't have and still want, and we're consumed by greed. As one pastor says, what you look for is what you will find. And if that's how we're viewing the world, all we're going to see is the broken things in the world versus maybe where God's moving and where there's hope. And it's a good way to kind of test the sort of questions. Are we in a constant state of worry? Worry that the money will stop, or if it stops, it will start again. I'm not sure I could pay everything I need to. Does it cause us to want to pad our account all the time? Not with targeted saving goals towards generosity or maybe practical things like college and stuff like that. We're just worried there's never enough in the account. Do we see others spend money maybe and think, how do they afford that? They're always blowing their money. They must be in huge debt. That's so irresponsible if you find yourself silently judging others how they spend their money, then perhaps we're living into a scarcity mindset ourselves. Are you constantly just thinking about money? Never satisfied with the paycheck? Always scheming of ways to make more and more and more? Or do you live with a, if I only had blank, my life would be better. If I only had more square footage in my house, everything would be better. If I only had a new car, a promotion, if we're only in the right school district, If we won the lottery, everything would be better, right? 
And I, I had a whole conversation with my son about this. It's like we were driving to school, and I'm like, look, it doesn't turn out really well for most people that win the lottery. And he's like, he's trying to understand why. I'm like, it just doesn't, buddy. You just got to trust me. And then he's like, well, then why do you play? I'm like, dang it. He's <laughs> not wrong. So I can tie it to resonate. And, um, but Jesus has an invitation here of how we can participate in the heart renovation I think he's calling us into. Because Jesus actually uses peculiar tenses in the, these sections as well. Because he says, where your treasure is, what tense is that? Present tense. There will your heart be also. What tense is that? Future tense. There's a link between the practices of generosity and what it actually produces and does for this. Because he does the same thing with the eyeball conversation. He says, if your eye is healthy, what tense? Present tense. So if we we function as a generous way to see the world, your whole body will be full of light. What tense? Future tense. It will produce an inner change in who we are as a people. Now, I'm I'm not for workspace sort of salvation, and I want to be careful that that we're we're not teaching that. And that's, that's not the goal here. This is not talking. It's not a salvific conversation. But out of a birth of the love for Christ himself, that we would actually step into the practices he's given us and then see that it participates with the Spirit in the renovation of who we are. Instead of trying to go, because I'm generous, I will give, perhaps we say, I want to be a generous person because that's what Christ is, so I will give in order to actually become that. And it's a different way to view it. And remember, this is coming right on the heels of Jesus speaking about what it looks like to become people of love. The righteousness has a deep love component to it because there's no chapter break in the original text. And so it's love your enemies. These are Be willing to not be non-retaliative and find ways to love others. Now let's talk about your generosity. And love and generosity are closely linked because how we view money is a core facet of love. And it's the renovation of the heart. It happens when we give. As Billy Graham would go on to say, if a person gets his attitude right uh, toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. I think that's true, and there's an invitation to this kind of life. And there's a life, a life abundant, an eternal life that's always on the table in Jesus' teaching that he calls his people into. And he gives us practices that are simply means to the end. At the end of it, it's always to know more God more and to become a person of love. And he's saying, here's some disciplines, here's some practices, fasting, prayer, generosity, to help you become more of the person of the kingdom, to sort of index our heart in the right direction. And giving is a practice where we move from, freed, uh, from fear and greed and become more towards the people of a good eye, where we see provision and care. We, see, we live without fear. We live a life that, that reduces anxiety, which is what he'll teach on very much next, and how we trust God, how we release the need for control. We share with others. We love our enemies. Who doesn't want to live in that? And to become a people that are generous by nature, David Brooks, who's a brilliant writer, says this, when people make generosity part of their daily routine, they refashion who they are. The interesting thing about your personality, your your essence, is that it is not more or less permanent, like your leg bone. 
Your essence is changeable, like your mind. Every action you take, every thought you have, changes you, even if just a little, making you a little more elevated or a little more degraded. If you do a series of good deeds, the habits of others, centeredness becomes gradually engraved into your life. If you lie or behave callously or cruelly towards someone, your personality degrades. It's easier for you to do something worse later on. And the people who radiate a permanent joy have given themselves over to lives of deep, loving commitment. Giving has become their nature, and little by little, they have made their souls incandescent. I love how he finishes that. That there's something distinct. And many of us know people that are incredibly generous, and there's just something distinct about their lives. There's joy. There's something that radiates out of them. So here's what we want to do. We want to help you grow and continue to be a people of generosity. We want to provide like scaffolding, or not scaffolding, we want to provide like a trellis for, for the vine of generosity to grow. Uh, we, want, we don't want to just teach and then move on. We, we want to talk about some practices of what this can actually look like. And so um, we have, is it Jonathan and Jake? <clears throat> we have some cards for you to start thinking about this, to start unpacking this. Because there's some practices in Scripture. Uh, scripture does speak of a, what's called a tithe, a 10%. Actually, most researchers would speak of the Israelites and say they likely gave close to 24.25% of their income. I don't know how they got to that number, but um, that there was some form of um, generosity towards uh, the faith that was close to 24.25, about a quarter of their income. When we get to the New Testament, there's really only one conversation about tithing specifically that happens. Um, and Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He doesn't dismiss their tithing. Um, he actually kind of winds up it and says, hey, it's okay that you tithe, but you're lacking mercy and compassion and justice over here. It'd be good if you did both. And so Jesus, once again, is speaking towards their hearts. He's not trying to lay on a heavier burden, but deal with their heart posture. And as always, Jesus is really doing the why behind it all. In the end, it's a connection with God, the kind of people we become, indexing our heart towards Jesus' kingdom, tithing as a practice to move our heart away from fear and greed and contentment and injustice, but a life without lack, a heart of gratitude and no anxiety and peace and love and compassion for those in need and freedom. And it all sounds wonderful. So is tithing for today? I don't know. Just being real. I mean, theologically, I just struggle. Some, some years I'm like, eh, maybe. Some years I'm like, I don't think so. As I said, Jesus only mentions it once. Doesn't necessarily command it. The tithe had a lot of connections to the temple, which is also not in place anymore. Some people take that and utilize it for the church. Okay, cool. I'm not going to disagree. But Jesus still has a ton of teaching about money. It's clear where to give to the poor. It's clear that the leaders in the church collect some money for their labors to live in generosity, there's some simplicity, there's just a lot of general teaching about money. And sometimes there's a heart posture of being like, do we have to tithe anymore, and stuff like that. And, and sometimes it's a heart posture of getting out of generosity more than anything else. But it becomes a question of like, all right, what should we do? And I don't necessarily know. I, I can't prescribe everything for you. But I think the specifics miss the point. And, and I want you to hear from me, like, like my wife and I are, are generous, and we do that because we, we just want to. Like 
We find life in it. We find freedom in doing this. And, and at times, the discipline of a, of a percentage, a target goal, is helpful. Not just in budgeting, but in spiritual formation, too. The discipline of a percentage to a, and to a church I'm a part of, I think, is really helpful. It keeps our heart here in the community and not at brunch with a mimosa. And for those of you who want to get started, we want to set some healthy, reasonable targets. And hear me very clearly. None of this is specifically commanded in Scripture, at least these like target numbers or anything like that. But, but there's a generosity that we wouldn't be doing our jobs well if we didn't help give you some goals and some targets and some ways to think about this as well. And next week, we'll talk about sort of the gospel implications of giving. The week after that, we may talk about resonate and what your money goes to here, because I want to be real. We're a lot of Gen Z and millennial people in the room, once again. And, and people want to know more than probably ever in history. They want to be like, all right, I need to make sure what I give to is doing these things, or what, what is behind it? Where does that money go? But I also want to be real that not all of you, some of you are sitting here going, all right, I don't know if I'm ready for any of this. Because of debt, because of poverty maybe you're experiencing, current expenses, your current lifestyle, then, then just start where you're at. If you're giving it 1% right now, okay, well, 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 let's consider some baby steps. And so we gave you some baby steps at the bottom of the, 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 the card. Hey, if you're, if you're not giving right now, or if you're giving up to maybe like 3%, let's set a target. Set a goal. Let's see what it looks like maybe to, to adjust and, and figure out what does 4% maybe look like. Or if you're in the 4 to 6% range, maybe consider what 7% may look like. If you're in the 7 to 9%, let's consider 10 or, or more. Or maybe you're already generous above and beyond that. And what does it look like to, to continue to grow there? What does it look like to start setting aside funds for, for bigger gifts? So, um, and we've had the opportunity to do that. I, I love that we, we have that opportunity in our family. So when the Kellys come last year and say, hey, we're, we're adopting a child, we want some funds, people have money set aside to go, okay, like, let's get towards that. And so their goals, they're healthy things to strive towards. So what does that look like? Now hear me, we're also a very young church. And so most of you have made more money this year than you made last year and are making more than you made two years ago because that's just what we're in. We're in the age of promotions and often moving up into companies uh, other than some of you who... Uh, had kids and decided to move to a one-income family. I understand that drop-off as well. But instead of maybe raising your standard of living as your wages go up, consider raising your standard of giving. I think it's a beautiful way to start thinking about things. Going, hey, I'm making 2% more than I made last year. How can I give away 2% more this year? As opposed to going, hey, let me buy more stuff and do this kind of other stuff. What does it look like to, to think that way? Because your standard of living got you here this year. You're doing all right. What's it look like to continue to grow in generosity? And I know people. I know people that give away 20 to 30%. I even know a few people that give away, live off of 49% of their income so they can give away more than they actually take in. Reach goals, right? Let's be real. <laughs> Those are reach goals for many of us. And if all this sounds insane, let me say, this only makes sense if we trust Jesus' vision for the world. I mean, all the teachings are that way. All the sort of kingdom stuff, are, it's always that way. It's a different kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. And it should sound a little crazy. But if we live in a vision of abundance, that we have a good father who takes care of us, no matter how much money we make or how massive debt we might have, 
But in our hearts, we actually see the world through the provision of God. We trust God. You learn to relax. You learn to share. Whether you have a lot or a little, you learn to trust that a generous life is better than a stingy one. But if we don't buy Jesus' vision for reality, we don't come to trust that he knows better than us, then, or we don't come to trust that, yeah, that he knows better than us, then, then we end up trusting just a bunch of other things, marketing campaigns, uh, algorithms on our phone of what the good life actually is. And guess what? All of those things want you to spend money on things you probably don't need, right? Half my ads are something from China that I really should not buy. So over the next four weeks, we're going to teach on this. We hope at the end of four weeks that you will think about this, pray about it, talk if you're married, talk to your spouse about it, um, and, and think about what, what it might look like to continue to take steps forward. And, and I want to close with this sort of challenge before you write off Jesus and what he's saying. Malachi 3 reads this. This is God speaking to the people in Malachi's day. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke and devour for you the devourer for you, so that in it will, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and the vine in your fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will be ble- will call you blessed, and you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now, Malachi, this section of Malachi definitely gets abused. There's the number of misreadings or manipulation that teaches kind of name it, claim it theology. We're not going to parse that out at this moment. But let me say this, at bare minimum, this is the only time in Scripture that God says, test me. All the other times it says, don't test me. <laughs> don't, don't put the Lord to your test. But here, God says, test me on this. Test my vision of reality. Try it out. Be a generous people. Try tithing. Bring the things from the storehouses into the temple and see what happens to your heart. And I think that's the invitation I want to give to you all. Test, test God. See if his vision for generosity and reality is greater than the world's. And if six months from now you feel deprived or behind on your bills or angry, okay. Or perhaps you're going to feel more free, more content, more generous, more joyful, than you've ever been before. And that's the invitation. Jesus is like, you want to live an abundant life? Try this out. And we want to provide ways for you to try it out. Ways to think about it. Ways to set goals. Ways to, to process that. And we want to walk with you. We want to know. Like, it's helpful for us to know so that we can continue to develop you as disciples to talk about these things, to understand where people are at in their current journeys. And if it's a real struggle, look, we want great. We want to talk. Maybe we can point to financial counselors. Maybe we can do things like that. Um, but we'd love, we'd love for you to step in and test. Test the Lord that he is good and faithful. And we'll do, give the most important gift back. That's not about vines and fruit. It's really about the fruit of the Spirit. 
and what it does and how it changes us internally. Let me pray for us and then we'll set up communion. God, I am thankful for these teachings as heavy or as hard as sometimes they can be for us. But sometimes that's just because they're close idols to us as well. So God, um, may it be the gift of repentance, perhaps, coming out of this. May it be a way of changing direction from one thing to the next, from changing what our phones or televisions or advertisements or all the things our friends and neighbors might be doing to to change our desires and our hearts, to be indexed more towards your kingdom. See you as a good father. See you as the one who has created all things good. That There's hope and abundance to be found around every corner. May we trust you in that. Amen.